Thank you for listening to this message from the pulpit of New Grace Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. We hope the message you are about to hear is a blessing to you and your family. Go ahead and get your Bibles open to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter number 25. 1 Samuel, chapter number 25. On April 12th, 1777... So we're going back a little ways to around, you know, Sue's 30th birthday. Uh, but August 12th, uh, 27th, 1777, one of George Washington's most reliable, uh, most dependable, and one of his favorite uh, generals was outmanned and outgunned by the British forces. Uh, while sitting on top of a hilltop, he ordered his troops to retreat, and this general command stayed on his horse, firing, and again, we're 1777, so it's not like he was up there with a submachine gun, you know, just going, you know, we're talking, boom, reload. But it took him a while, but he stood up there firing against the British forces to give his men the time they needed to escape. His horse was shot from under him, he was pinned under the horse, but he still was able to fend off this British army, this British battalion, uh, so that his men could escape, and eventually he escaped. Uh, many people who saw that, they said that this was one of the most heroic feats that they had ever seen. Now, of course, the name of this man was Benedict Arnold. He was one of America's at the time, he was one of their youngest and arguably one of their most capable military leaders. But for some reason, the Continental Congress uh, did not promote him as much as he felt that he should be promoted. He had a very fragile ego, uh, and he was overlooked time and time again for these promotions. And all of the, his contemporaries, all the generals that he served with, all the men he served with, uh, whose skills and whose accomplishments were far less than his, continue to get promoted above him. Fast forward to October 1777 in Saratoga, uh, Benedict Arnold, he's under the command of Horatio Gates, uh, a much less skilled general. Uh, And General Gates despised General Arnold, Benedict Arnold, because the men loved Benedict Arnold. They listened to him. And Benedict Arnold would always argue with Gates about what they should do in these battles. And so he argued with Gates uh, that the Gates' plan was disastrous and that they should do his plan. And so Gates, out of jealousy, out of anger, out of pettiness, basically had Benedict Arnold arrested and left him in his tent and forbade him from participating in the battle. Well, the battle began and continued to go, and of course, it turned bad. Uh, the British were, were, were winning. They were... Uh, just as Benedict Arnold assumed and knew that they would. I'm going to switch to four here. i got to get rid of five. It's a pain. Uh, but so the, the battle began to turn and began to go bad, and Benedict Arnold left his tent against orders, rallied some of his men, and turned the tide of that battle and won the battle for America. During the battle, he was shot in the leg, And it took him five months to recover. During that five months, General Gates took full responsibility for the victory. Didn't give Arnold any of the credit. Didn't even mention that he was there. And so Benedict Arnold just became 
angrier and more bitter over the things that were happening to him, getting no, con- no recognition, no promotion, no benefit from the things he had sacrificed for his country. Then in 1779, he's in Philadelphia. His wife, Peggy, is a Tory loyalist. She's loyal to the British cause, and she keeps giving Benedict Arnold these articles written in Britain uh, that really praise him. And he starts to realize the British army and the British government, they respect him more than the American government, more than the American army. And so... He makes a decision, and Benedict Arnold goes from one of the most promising young generals in American history to the biggest traitor in American history. His name is synonymous with trade it with cowardice and greed and the word traitor. Now, it's tragic for a man to spend his life fighting for a cause, fighting for a, a purpose, fighting for an allegiance. And then all of a sudden to become a traitor to that cause in the end. In 1 Samuel chapter 25, David comes very close to doing just that. He comes very close to selling out his values that he has championed up to this point. Now, of course, chapter 25 really is kind of a part two to what we looked at last week in chapter 24. Of course, chapter 24... David finishes as a hero. He's got Saul, a man who's hunted him down for years, who's tried to kill him, who's lied about him, who's threatened him, who's taken his wife from him. This man, Saul, who he would be fully justified in killing. He has a perfect opportunity. Saul is by himself, alone, using the potty in a cave at David's dad. And David could have very easily come in and killed him and justified the killing. But David says, no. I'm going to let God fight my battles. I'm going to trust God to do what only God can do, to put me on the throne in his timing. Then in chapter 25, David falters in his faith. He lets the flesh get the best of him. And given the situation, it's it's understandable why he does what he does, but it makes us question, is David really the king that we've been waiting for. So look in your Bibles in 1 Samuel chapter 25, verse number 1. And Samuel died, and all the Israelites were gathered together and lamented him and buried him in his house in Ramah. And David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. Now Samuel was a, a father figure to David. He was a spiritual mentor to David. He believed in David when no one else did. Now, he's gone. David's kind of shaken. He's taken this, he's had this huge personal loss. But not only that, David's in hiding. He can't go to the funeral. He can't go to the viewing. He can't go to the burial. He can't mourn Samuel like the rest of the nation is mourning Samuel. David, personally speaking, is in a very difficult, hard situation. Look at verse number two. And there was a man in Maon whose possessions were in Carmel, and the man was very great, and he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and he was shearing his sheep 
in Carmel. Now, in this time period, owning land made you wealthy. If you owned any amount of land, you were considered wealthy. Uh, because most of the land was owned by the king or by other people, and you would, you would rent the land or lease the land or work the land for them for a profit. But here, this guy, he owns a lot of land, but he also owns 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. In that time period, this puts him in the, the category of Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates or Mark Zuckerberg. He is an uber-wealthy man. A lot of land, a lot of property, a lot of money. Verse number three. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. And she was a woman of good understanding and of beautiful countenance. But the man was churlish and evil in his doings, and he was of the house of Caleb. Now, the word churlish there means cruel. This is not the a best way to describe a couple. Oh, man, she's beautiful, and she's sweet, and she's precious, but he's a jerk. He's evil. He's mean. He's selfish. That's not a great way to explain or to describe a marriage or a couple. Now, it's how people describe my marriage, but I'm Abigail and April's Nabal in that situation. But, then, you know, so Nabal is, is not, obviously, we, we get off the bat that Nabal here is not a good guy. And David and his men, they're, they're staying near uh, Nabal's, passage, Nabal's pastors. And while they're there in hiding, they are actually protecting his land protecting his sheep and protecting his goats and protecting his shepherds there. Whenever the Philistine raiders would come in to try to take some of his, his property, they would be there to fight them off. To Nabal hasn't asked them to do this. Nabal didn't hire them to do this. They're doing this out of the goodness of their heart. They're like, hey, he's a guy. He's in Israel. Uh, now, Nabal is not an Israelite. Abigail is, but Nabal is not. But he's still, he's in Israel. He owns land in, in Israel. He's one of their, their countrymen. So David and his men, they're, they're fighting the Philistines. They're, they're keeping them at bay. They are really helping Nabal and his men. They have sacrificed to protect his property, to help his shepherds, and Nabal is really thriving because of this. Verse 16 says that David and his men were a shield for Nabal. Now, it is customary in this culture, again, during this time, that once a year, you would give a gift to people who had helped you in your, in your business, in your, your, your keeping your land. So Nabal traditionally would have given a, a gift offering to David and his men to thank them for what they've done, to thank them for giving of themselves to help him. And so David expects this, his men expect this, and Nabal, again, he's a rich guy. They're expecting, like, hey, he's going to give us each a Tesla or something. You know, we're just going to get a MacBook Pro or some great gift. And so David, he sends his men to collect whatever gift Nabal is going to give them. And Nabal not only doesn't give them a gift, he insults them. Look at verse number 10. And Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David? And who is the son of Jesse? There be many servants nowadays that break away every man from his master. So he's basically calling David a runaway slave. He says, why should I help this? Who is this guy? Who's David? Now, everybody knows who David is. Nabal knows who David is. 
they know that David is the giant killer. He's, he's, you know, Saul's killed his thousands, but David's kills his ten thousands. They know who David is. And so he is insulting David. This is a severe insult to David and his men. He is refusing to pay them anything for their services, and he's putting them down for their work. And it really bothers David because, again, David, remember how David grew up. David's the runt of the family. He's forgot. We saw the first week when, when we finally meet David and Samuel goes down to anoint him and, and Jesse says, well, there's the little one. That little one in Hebrew means there, there's the insignificant one. Yeah, we've got this, this worthless, insignificant, of no value kid, David, that's in the field. No one cares about him. So David, he's been forgotten his entire life by everyone. Saul has publicly smeared him. At this time, he sent him into exile. He tells everybody David's a traitor. And so these insults, they really play into David's insecurities. David's like, this guy, David, he's a runt. He's a nothing. He's worthless. Who cares about David? And that just feeds into everything David's dealt with his entire life. Look at verse 13. <clears throat> and David said unto his men, Gird ye on every man his sword. And they girded on every man his sword. And David also girded on his sword. And there went up after David about 400 men and 200 abode with the stuff. David is furious. And he, he tells his guys, strap up, it's go time. We're going to show Nabal who I am. We're going to show him how insignificant I truly am. Then skip down to verse number 21. <clears throat> now David had said, surely in vain... Have I kept all this fellow hath in the wilderness? Hath I kept all this fellow hath in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that pertained unto him, and he hath required evil for good. So David, he, he's out for blood. He's like, you know, why did I even bother helping this guy? Why did I protect him? Why did I, you know, ben, why did he benefit off of my men and our sweat and our blood and our, our fighting? We should have just taken everything we wanted to. And he's, he's, he's out for blood. He's like, I'm going to seek vengeance on this guy for how he insulted me, for how he's rejected me. This is the same guy that last chapter when Saul, who deserved, in a lot of people's opinions, mine included, to be killed by David because David was in the right and Saul was in the wrong. Where David sees Saul vulnerable, he's like, he's been hunting me, he's been smearing me, he took my wife away and gave her to another man, he's ruined my life, I have every right to kill him because God promised me the throne. If I kill him, I'm on the throne. David, the one who said, I'll let God take vengeance, is now looking at this guy who basically stiffed him on a tip. It's like, I'll show him who's in charge. I'll show him what's going on. Now he's going to murder. And the Bible says later on, he goes, we're going to go down. We're going to kill everybody. We're going to kill Nabal. We're going to kill his servants. We're going to kill the children. We're going to kill everybody. The Bible says, it literally goes, it goes, we're going to kill everybody that, that urinates on the wall. I mean, you know, I could use the Bible language, but that's offensive to a lot of people. He's like, every man, I don't care who they are. I don't care how they are. I don't care what their job is. We're going down and we're killing everybody. He's going to murder a bunch of innocent people because Nabal insulted him. What happened to the guy who was like, no, vengeance is the Lord's. He will fight for me. He'll take care of Saul, but this idiot Nabal, I'm going to take care of him. David, he's, you got to understand, he's tired. 
He's emotionally exhausted. Samuel's dead. Saul's still chasing him. He's lost his friend. He's lost his family. Everybody's out to get him. He's been running for, for years at this point. He's emotionally exhausted. He's physically exhausted. He's separated from his loved ones. And this nothing, this nobody, plays on his insecurities. Now, Nabal, luckily, has a good wife. Has a loving, compassionate woman. She hears about how Nabal insulted David. But more importantly, she hears David's coming to kill everybody. Look at verse number 18. <clears throat> then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two bottles of wine and five sheep ready dressed and five measures of parched corn and a hundred clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and laid them on asses. And she said to her servants, go on before me. Behold, I come after you. But she told her, but she told not her husband, Nabal. So Abigail, she puts together this incredible gift basket. Raisins and fig newtons and bread and wine. Just this incredible gift basket to thank David for what he's done. Then look at verse number 24. Uh, and uh, Verse 25, and when Abigail saw David, she hasted and lighted off the ash. She fell before David on her face and bowed herself to the ground and fell at his feet and said, Upon, and said, upon me, O Lord, upon me let this iniquity be, and let thy handmaid, I pray thee, speak in thine audience and hear the words of thine handmaid. Let not my Lord, I pray thee, regard this man of Belial, that's how we know, Nabal's not an Israelite. He worships Bilal, which is a false god. Uh, even Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, thine handmaid, saw not the young men of my Lord, whom thou didst send. Now, Nabal, in Hebrew, literally means idiot. She's like, he's just like his name. His name is idiot, and he's an idiot. Now, I don't believe... Nabal's parents named him idiot. Uh, I hope not anyway. You know, I've heard some kids name bad names, but naming your kid idiot is pretty dumb. So what most people believe is that Nabal was not an Israelite, and so Nabal, what we get in the Bible, is kind of a transliteration of, from this foreign language to, and when you say his foreign name in Hebrew, it sounds like idiot. Or it's a nickname. Either way, Nabal is not a great guy. Now, I know, you know, it, it says a lot when his wife comes to David and says, you know, Nabal, his name means moron, his name means idiot. He's an idiot. Don't waste your time on this idiot. Now, she tells David this wouldn't have happened if your men would have come to me. If you'd have come to me, I'd have, I'd have taken care of everything. I'd have given you the gift. I'd have done everything that we needed to be to do. Just, just, just should have come to me instead of my stupid husband. Look at verse number 29. <clears throat> Yet a man is risen to pursue thee, uh, to, seek thy, to seek thy soul, but the soul of my Lord shall be bound in a bundle of life with the Lord thy God. And the souls of thine, thine God and the souls of thine enemy shall he sling out as the middle of a sling. Now this is, again, this is Abigail talking to David. And she says, look, you know what? David, why are you wasting your energy on Nabal? God 
has promised to take care of you. God has promised to put you on the throne. So why are you wasting your energy and your time on this? And then notice at the end of the verse, she uses the word sling twice. She's saying, God's already, God, you know God fights for you. There's no way you 10 years ago as a little scrawny kid could have beaten Goliath, but God fought for you. God killed him for you. God's fought for you all the time. So why are you going to, why are you going to do this now? This is pointless now. Then look at verse number 30. And it shall come to pass when the Lord shall have done to my, to, when the Lord should have done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning thee and shall have appointed thee ruler over Israel that this shall be no grief unto thee nor offense of heart unto my Lord either that thou hast shed blood causeless or that my Lord had avenged himself but when the Lord shall have dealt well with my Lord then remember thine handmaid. Now again, I know sometimes we read that and we're like, okay, what? That's a lot of thines and lords and whatever's in there. Here's what Abigail is saying. David, one day, God's going to put you on the throne because he promised he would. Do you really want to tell people this story when you're king? Do you really want people to look back at your time before you became king and think, that's our king, the guy who lost his temper over some moron and slaughtered an entire family because some guy didn't give him a tip? Do you really want people telling this story when they tell about your life? And look, that's great advice. One day your life will be told to the next generation. We should live our life today so that we're grateful and glad that people are telling our story tomorrow. Faith is living today in a way that you're glad you did it tomorrow. It's thinking about how you want the story of your life to be told. Let's look at verse number 32. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, which sent thee this day to meet me. And blessed be thy advice, and blessed be thou, which has kept me this day from coming to shed blood and from avenging myself with mine own hand. We learn four things from this story. Here's the first thing we learn. We need the body of Christ. Every single one of you, myself included, all of us have lapses in judgment from time to time. We have times where we're we're tired, we're emotional, we're frustrated. We're not thinking clearly. Stuff's just been going on, and, and we, we, we make bad decisions. David, who one chapter ago was urging everybody to trust God and let God be God, now he falters. And he says, you know what? God's not going to do it. I'm going to murder this guy. I'm going to kill this guy. I'm going to avenge myself. We all need an Abigail in our lives. And David recognized that God had sent her to him. Look at verse 32 again. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, which sent thee this day to meet me. David says, I'm so glad God sent you to me before I made a huge mistake. I'm so glad God put you in my life to help me make a right decision. You have to be in a place where God can send you to people that he knows needs you to go to. God needs you to be in a place where you can be an Abigail for someone else. See, Abigail is that friend 
that tells you you're about to make a bad decision. You're about to do something that's gonna, you're going to regret later in your life. You know, a lot of people, we make mad, bad decisions because we pray about it. It feels right, so we do it. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying don't pray, just rely on friends. Because some of your friends are neighbors. Some of your friends, you think they're Abigails, but they're actually idiots. And so I'm not saying don't pray. Yes, pray. But here's the thing. Sometimes God answers your prayer by sending people to tell you things. By sending people who can speak truth into your life. Because Abigail, she didn't just come and say, hey, please don't kill my husband. Please don't kill my kids. Please let us live. He's in it. She says, David, remember what God said. Abigails are people who will speak the truth of God into your life boldly, helping you understand what God wants you to do. God wants us to pray about everything, but he answers our prayers using people. See, Proverbs tells us in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. That doesn't mean you go to everybody and get advice until you get the advice you think you won't. That's what a lot of us do. Well, I'm just going to keep going and, you know, get advice and get, oh, that guy tells me what I want to hear. That guy's telling me what I want to do. He's the wise counselor. No, he's probably the neighbor. Listen to everybody else. It is listening to people speak the word of God into your heart. You know, people, we usually make bad decisions during emotional times. We're hurt. We're angry. We're excited. Maybe we're just hungry. But we need someone who is detached from the situation to tell us the best thing to do. We all need an Abigail in our life. And you should pray that God helps you be an Abigail to others. Abigail is a model of godly counsel. She speaks calmly into an emotionally charged situation. She comes humbly to David. She bows before him. She shows honor to David. She doesn't come self-righteously. Saying, I don't know why they think you're the, getting the man after God's own heart. You, you losing your temper over this moron. No, she humbly comes to him and throws herself on his mercy. She comes kindly, bringing food. She speaks boldly and honestly. Here's what I'm saying. If, an Abigail, if you think someone's coming to you and is an Abigail and they don't bring you a potluck dish, they're not. No, I'm not saying that. But hey, you want to be an Abigail, bring somebody some cookies. They listen to you better over cookies or something like that. But she speaks boldly and honestly. But best of all, she grounds her counsel in the word of God and who God is. You know, this story challenges our stereotypes. In our culture, people, you know, if you look at TV or Hollywood or comedy, women are emotional. They're weak. In this story, that's David and Nabal. They're the ones who are overly, overly emotional. They're the ones who are irrational and flying off the handle because of some slight insult. See, human and church history is filled with wise, strong, courageous women and men acting like fools. We all need the family of God. Second thing we see is wise women bless their family. How many of you can identify with Abigail? You're like, my husband is an idiot. All right, I'll ask y'all. Y'all can message me later. I saw April's hand flinch for a second, and then she realized, nope, I can't say that. You know, sometimes women end up in, in marriages that are, are not ideal. 
where their husband is not the, the spiritual leader. Maybe she feels trapped, like she's never going to make a, a positive influence on the world or her family. We can learn from Abigail. She saves her husband's life. She saves her children's, her children's lives despite being in a bad marriage. Now, when I say bad marriage, I'm not talking about abuse. I'm not talking about adultery. I'm talking about you're married to a moron. You're married to a guy who just makes bad decisions once in a while. Maybe you're just married to a guy who's not a spiritual leader. He's not trying to, you know, your kids are in church because you're bringing them. Your kids are, are doing anything because you're doing it. If you're in a bad, an abusive marriage, then God, Bible can tell you, you got rights to get out of there. I'm not saying that. But you're just married to a guy who isn't what you thought he should be. But whatever your marriage is, God has placed you there for a purpose. See, God uses difficulty in our lives to teach us about him. Now, this goes for men, too. Maybe you men, you're in a marriage where your, your wife's the moron. Your wife's the navel. I can, I, can, I can attest to that. No, I cannot. But your, your wife's not what she ought to be, or she's not the spiritual helper that you would want her to be or the spiritual leader for your kids. Whatever your marriage is like, God has placed you there for a purpose. God uses difficulty to teach us about him. It's like how a, per, a pearl is formed. A pearl is formed when an oyster gets a, an irritant, a piece of sand in its, I'm going to say mouth, but it's not their mouth, but you know what I mean. It gets a piece of sand, and it irritates it. So it covers it with a little protective layer, and it does that time and time again, year after year after year, to, until you have a beautiful pearl that is formed. If there's no irritation, there's no pearl. If there's no irritation, then nothing good can come out of it. If there's no irritant, there's no growing in God. So if you have a husband like Nabal or a wife like Nabal, just start calling them Pearl. So you're my, you're my Pearl because you irritate me so much, I get to learn about God more. Uh, now, God used her bad marriage to produce beauty in her. God placed her there to save her family. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says that a believing mom and an unbelieving family sanctifies her kids. Now, the word sanctify there means to set apart. Paul says that a godly mom, a godly person, and I want to just genderify that, men or women, a godly person in a home sets apart that family for grace. This wife, she gives them a chance to see the gospel lived out and to believe Christ as their Savior. Wise women can bless their family. It brings us to the third point. Foolish men can ruin their family. Men, don't make your wife go behind your back to honor God like Nabal made Abigail do. You know, you're, you're, don't make your wife go behind your back to get your kids to church, to, to be faithful in tithes and offerings. You living a life of foolishness will affect more than just you. It will destroy your family. Lead in such a way that your wife's wisdom complements yours. That your wife's wisdom helps you lead your family. Be the spiritual leader in your family. Show your family how to be generous, how to be forgiving, how to be loving, how to be kind. Look how this story ends. Look at verse number 36. <clears throat> and Abigail came to Nabal. And behold, he held a feast in his house like the feast of a king. Nabal's heart was merry within him, and he was very drunken 
Wherefore she told him nothing less or more until the morning light. But it came to, ma- to, it came to pass in the morning when the wine was gone out of Nabal, and his wife had told him these things, that his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. And it came to pass after about ten days after that the Lord smote Nabal, and he died. That's a, a tragic ending for Nabal. God is showing us that like Abigail said, God will fight your battles for you, David. You don't need to take vengeance on fools like Nabal in your life. If you've got a Nabal you're dealing with, you don't got to take vengeance on him. God will take care of him. But that also means if you're a fool like Nabal, God will take care of you too and not in a great way. Don't be like Nabal. Here's the fourth thing we learn. Let God do what only God can do. This is what we saw last week. You cannot accomplish the promises of the Spirit and the power of the flesh. That's the theme of these two stories in chapter 24 and chapter 25. When life messes up, when life goes wrong, You have two choices. We can take matters in our own hands like David was trying to do with Nabal or we can wait on God. We can trust that God's going to take care of us. When we are wronged by someone and we take matters in our own hands, we are taking vengeance upon ourselves. You know, someone badmouths you and you badmouth them too. And someone comes to you and says, you you know what so-and-so said about you? Oh, well, you think, let me tell you about them. And you start bad-mouthing them and gossiping them. Someone hurts you, so you hurt them back. Repaying evil for evil never stops evil. It just multiplies it. Let God do what only God can do. If we want to be used by God, if we want to be used to build his kingdom over our kingdom, we have to leave the vengeance to him. And this story doesn't end with just David giving up his desire to take vengeance. But it ends with a warning of much darker things on the horizon. Look at verse number 40. And when the servants of David were come to Abigail, to Carmel, they spake unto her, saying, David sent us unto thee to take thee to him to wife. And she arose and bowed herself on her face and to the earth and said, Behold, let thine handmaid be a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. Now look, that sounds great, doesn't it? You know, happily ever after. Abigail, she was married to a moron. Now she gets David. God took care of everything. Sounds like a a wonderful fairy tale ending. Look at verse 43. But David also took Anamoth of Jezreel, and they were also both of them his wives. But Saul had given Michael, his daughter, David's wife, to that guy the son of Laish, which was of Gallium. So David, at this point, he's got three wives. Now, Michael's been given to another guy, but he gets her back later uh, If you continue when we continue to see the story. But right now, David's got three wives. David is beginning to exploit his position as king for his own benefit. He's like, I'm going to be the king one day, and, you know, kings have multiple wives, so he's, he's exploiting that position to have more wives. Now, 
probably you're like me. What's the big deal? Men had multiple wives in this time, all the, in this period, all the time. Abraham multiple wives. You know, a lot of people had a lot of. You know, look at Jacob, and you know, all these guys had multiple wives. What's the big deal? Well, the big deal is whenever you see multiple marriages in Scripture, you know, God never comes out right and says, you know, thou shalt not marry but one woman. But whenever you see multiple marriages in Scripture, it is always negative. There's always problems. But the bigger problem is in Deuteronomy chapter 27. God gave the law, and he, he told Israel, one day you're going to have a king. One day you're going to have a king over top of you. And that king shall only have one wife. Just like a, a pastor, it's like a deacon, husband of one wife. I'm not saying if you're not a pastor or deacon, you guys can go out and marry another woman. That's between you and your wife and her shotgun or whatever. Uh, but there's a, there's a, 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 God says, look, if you're going to be a leader of the church, if you're going to be a leader of the nation, your heart needs to be given to just one, one woman so that your heart's with me. So David is using his position to violate the law of God. It's the first indication that David's not really the king we're looking for. Until now, he seems like he was. He started out as a humble Shepherd boy, he's trusted God, he's lived a life of courage, but now we see a lapse of faith. We see David giving in to the flesh. He starts to leverage his privilege as king to multiply wives in direct disobedience to God's word. Just a few chapters in, and we realize David's not who we need. We need a king more righteous than him. Our salvation will never come from a man, no matter how strong, no matter how righteous they may seem. The Bible says we all sin and we all fall short of God's glory, even a man after God's own heart, even David. In this story, the closest picture to Jesus that we see isn't David. It's Abigail. She comes to David. She bows before him. She takes the blame for what Nabal did. It's my fault. I should have talked to you. I know you talked to the moron. You should, she's, it's my fault. I should have been there. I should have understood what was going to happen. And so she takes the blame for something she didn't do. She's wise. She's gracious. She rides in on a donkey to, to, help, uh, to help save people. She offers a meal of peace. And through her bravery and through her sacrifice, she saves the lives of many. David's not the best picture story of Jesus in the story. She is, and we start to see the problems in David. He's not the king we need for identity and security and happiness. Those come to us through a king that we'll get later. A king David points to. This king will be a descendant of David, and he'll lay down his life for all the nables of the world. Now, here's the thing. We're also in this story. We're the Nabals. We are ignoring God's goodness, and we are unthankful for his kindness to us. Jesus refused to take vengeance on us. Instead, he absorbed God's wrath for us. When he died for sins that he never committed, he was arrested and crucified and died in our place and was buried and rose again three days later to restore us to God. He showed us he's the true king. He's the one we need. 
He's the one that will never falter or fail. As we close, I just want you to, rem- to look at the story and think, <clears throat> who are we? Are we Nabal, ignoring the goodness of God? Are we David, flying off the handle over the slightest insult and take matters in our own hands? Or are we Abigail, trying to speak peace and the word of God in people's lives and trying to help steer people in the right direction? We're one of the three. We all need Abigails in our life. But too often we're the Nabals and too often we're the Davids doing things our own way. Thank God for the Abigails. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much today you've given us. Thank you so much for the opportunity to come together to study your word, to see in this story, God, how, how, how much we need people in our lives who can speak the word of God, can speak the truth of God boldly. Thank you for listening to this message from New Grace Baptist Church. For more information about New Grace, check out our website at www.reachingroanoke.com.